When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Ray, since it's been so hot out, you've been doing a lot of yard work like myself. How you feeling? I'm hot. I also realize that when you're out there and you're bending around in different positions, you're getting down on your knees. The fact is, I'm feeling it a little bit and I could use some CBD. And I'll tell you what, one CBD is really showing me that they know what to do when it comes to taking care of helping people with pain. Everything from soft gels to oils to gummies and salves and balms. And it's all online at OneCBD.com. I like the fact that they're organically grown. They are third-party lab tested. They are consciously created. It is made in the USA. I personally like the gummies because I have a sweet tooth. It's all 100% organic. It's all made the best way with the best strains. And that's what's important when you're choosing a CBD product. And one of the many great things about their website that he has full disclosure so that you too can read up about it and find out what may work best for you. He personally had to find something that worked for him because of his medical issues. And Ty's story is right on the website. And if you go there, they'll give you 20 percent off your first order when you use the code balance at onecbd.com that's one cbd achieve a renewed sense of balance Rick Coob here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll with my imbalanced brother and partner in crime. Marcus, remember when we talked about the five favorites, the episode about the first two albums, and you wanted to go to Dublin, Ireland? Yeah, I remember that. What are you thinking? How about if we go to Dublin and stay there and then travel the world with a band that came from there, the band you were talking about in that episode, U2? I would love to talk about U2. They're such an interesting band with interesting music musicians, interesting people, and a very storied and rich history. They're also on our list of bands that have been together with the same members for more than 40 years, and it's a short list. Very short list, and I'm sure it hasn't been easy, and they've had their share of conflict, but overall, these childhood friends, these teenage friends... Yeah have stuck together through thick and thin and have made it work over and over and over again. Reinventing themselves when everyone said they were done on multiple occasions. But it all starts in Dublin. It does? When? Like a lot of the people that we talk about who started early together in bands, they started in school. They all met in school. And they came from, you know, different backgrounds. They were all very different, but something worked different ages too Larry being the youngest he was always the one they had to make excuses to get him out of stuff with school so that he could come play with the band right oh yeah and he didn't mind he loved to play music I think they all realized at at that point that school was all fine and dandy but not for them they were musicians and they knew what they wanted to do they were focused at that time very focused for young gentlemen and um, they were quirky I suppose before anybody got to know them I mean Paul Houston takes on the moniker of Bono Vox shortened to Bono. He'd take on other personas through the year, including one of my favorites, The Fly. (laughs) (laughs) 
Paul Hewson did not come up with the name Bono. The name was actually given to him by an especially creative Liptonian, a kid in his neighborhood called him Bonovox. And he still laughs to this day when people call him Mr. Vox because of the story <laughs> behind the name. And as a return serve, he gave the guy who called him Bono Vox the nickname Googie. Googie was the lead vocalist of the Virgin Prunes, which was another band from Dublin at that time. I So it's kind of funny how they uh, went back and forth on giving each other nicknames. That's what friends do. They bust on each other, and then some nickname like that sticks with all the buddies, and, right. and that's what you go by. So it's funny how these things come around. Paul isn't the only one in the band adopting a moniker. Dave Evans becomes the edge, and he really is the edge. He's the not-so-secret weapon in you, too. And then the rhythm section, they just go by their names. Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. And Adam famously, at one point in his career, did a full frontal nude spread where we all realized he could have been nicknamed The Package. <laughs> when did he do the full frontal nude spread? I don't know. Get the research team working. All righty, let's get the research team working on that. While we continue talking about you two here on the podcast. And then we have Larry Mullen Jr., of course, on drums, a man who has created his own identity. If you think of the sound he puts in so many of their songs with his snare hits and his toms, everything. And uh, they wouldn't be who they are for all and all these years, decades now, if it wasn't for the four of them. Even though Bono's the face and the voice and Edge might be a lot of the feels, the four of them make what is you two. And that chemistry to this day seems to be as strong as it was back in the early days. Oh, it's a note from the research team. What did the, they say? The full frontal Adam Clayton shot that I'm talking about mm -hmm. was part of a controversial photo panel on the Octung Baby album cover. Yeah. Remember, there's a lot of photo collages. Well, one of the photos in one of the collages was uh, Adam's junk in full, full display. Play. Thank you, research team. Outstanding. Also, one other little tidbit is, as far as research goes, Bono Vox's full nickname from his friend in his neighborhood, oh God, Bono go. Vox of O'Connell Street. Now we know where he grew up. <laughs> Over there on O'Connell Street. Well, we often think of the beginning of U2 as the first record, Boy, which hit in 1980. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, Marcus. But before we talk about that, there was actually music before that. And I didn't realize that they had issued a single of 11 O'Clock TikTok, one of my favorite early U2 songs, before they even did the EP that we were talking about. Yeah, the EP3 and 11 O'Clock TikTok is a song that they believed in. And to this day, they're still thankful for the label believing in them and letting them release 11 O'Clock TikTok as the first single because of how much that song meant to them and how much they believed in that song. So they ended up developing quite a relationship with the label because of the fact that they had this mutual respect for each other. And the label is Island Records. That means Chris Blackwell is in the picture. A great call once again on his part to bring another great young rock band into the fold. And we know what his approach is because of what Chris was telling us. Chris France in the episode where we interviewed him talks about him saying, just go down, make a single, let me hear it, and let's see where we go from there. And so he he probably did something similar there with the U2 and the 3 EP. I would bet on it because if you listen to that 3 EP and the rawness of it, you really hear the potential in U2. You hear so much in that 3 EP on what they can be. And I can see, looking back with the knowledge that I have now, why Chris Blackwell believed what he believed and what he heard and what he liked when he uh, first heard them. You can hear that, it. That's what makes a man like Chris a true man of vision in the business. He understood more than the typical 
music executive about stuff, about how musicians work and how they think. And I think that's something we learned from Chris France, too. So they go and they make the first full length. That's where it hit you. That's where it hit me. And not everybody at first. Boy comes out in 1980 and I'm driving to work. I was working the, the second shift at that point in my life, right? And I'm driving in and Joe Bonadonna, senior, comes on the air at MMR and says, this is a new band from Dublin, Ireland. We just got it in and we think it's going to be big. This is you too and I will follow. And he plays it. And the rest of my ride into work, which was about 10 minutes, was like I was in a cloud. I couldn't believe it. I just heard something so groundbreaking to my ears, something so uplifting and immediate because it wasn't happening every day by about 1980. That song blew me away. As a kid, I was like, I, I probably stared at the radio with my jaw agape going, oh, when I first heard it because yeah. there's something about it. And then getting the album and listening to it all the way through, it's an incredible record. It really is. And it's why it's still one of my most favorite albums of all time to this day. And I don't think that's ever one of your waver. top two favorite first two records of all time. You're Absol- number one, right? Yep, absolutely. And there's just something about this record that I will hold on to for the rest of my life. I know that for a fact. As I was one to do in those days, a couple days later, I went to Hapro Music right on York Road, just down the street from Crooked Eye, by the way. And I went in and I asked Joe about it. He hadn't heard about it yet. And so he ordered it for me. And so a few days go by, I take it home and I put on this record. And I was just like, wow. These guys are so different from what I've been listening to. Songs like Out of Control, A Day Without Me, Into the Heart, and The Electrico all just grabbed me immediately. Yeah, Day Without Me, Stories for Boys, Ankat Dub, Into the Heart, all of them from the get-go. There was something really moving about all of these songs, and they were different. The way the band put the album together really makes a difference, too, because it flows. And again, I highly recommend you listen to this one from front to back because of what it does in the Electric Co. I mean, it's, God, it's such a good album. Ah, I, I get so, I do, I get emotional about this album when I talk about it. To underline the label's commitment to this new band, U2, Steve Lillywhite's at the controls, and he would be part of a good chunk of those early U2 albums, including the follow-up October. Which October happened in a weird way because they were on tour in the United States, and because they'd been on tour for so long, they were writing songs for the next album, and Bono had all of his music in a briefcase, all of his lyrics and all of his Mm -hmm. ideas in a briefcase, and in Portland, Oregon, to women walked in backstage and took the briefcase and it was found years later in an attic in portland oregon and i'm wondering if they would ever consider using any of that stuff and recording any of it as it was envisioned to be originally in their later years like all right you got portland in the mix so i'm gonna put COVID in the mix and maybe right now during this time when he's had months at home bono's gone to the attic and pulled it out who knows right we don't know we do that's the great thing about rock and roll we never know what's coming next that's gonna make us go what the fuck man i know (laughs) i know man some of these little stories you find out are pretty some of these little bits and tidbits of information we've been finding out are mind-blowing you know what we didn't mention yet is how they got their name and i pulled up these articles from trouser press in 81 and 83 and he said the exact same thing two years later to two different writers tim summer in 81 when they were just breaking through with boy and doing the boy tour in the u.s bono said they chose the name u2 to be ambiguous to stay away from categorization People who work in print tend to tidy things up a bit. Put a stack of bands in a way, a stack of bands in here. People don't fit into boxes. We all smell different. We all eat different. We all are different. There's a huge audience out there of individuals. And in 83, he said the exact same thing. Seriously. (laughs) I mean, seriously. And they thought big from the beginning. At the beginning, they didn't want to play places unless they were sold out. They really had the idea of playing big places from the get-go and that was their vision and that was their idea they wanted to be big like the Beatles and like the Rolling Stones and like Led Zeppelin and like Van Halen and like so 
many of their predecessors in the rock and roll family. For the second record, October, part of the recording location takes us back to a repeated theme in the Imbalance history of rock and roll. They recorded at Compass Point. That studio is legendary. When we do a series on studios, when we do a sub-series or a sub-categorization of studios, we'll definitely be going into depth on what Compass Point was and what it means to the family of rock and roll. Wow. You're talking about that early U2 tour with the briefcase being stolen and all that stuff, right? And that was around the time that MMR was an early proponent of the band, and I would love to get Cindy Drew on the podcast, who worked there then and works at our sister station, WMGK Now, and works and back and forth doing stuff for the whole group there. But get her on to talk about the time she went to pick them up at the fucking airport. That's crazy, because December 15th of 1980, their first Philadelphia appearance was at the Bijou. That was probably it. But we got to get Drew Baby on to talk about it so we she can give us a whole do. scoop. And then let's see, there's Denver. They played the Rainbow Music Hall, which I wanted to go to, and my parents were like, no. And then they came to... Uh, where were they uh, in Philadelphia? They didn't play Philadelphia. They played the fast lane in Asbury. They played, they skipped Philadelphia on that last leg of the U.S. So it was the Bijou. They were, they were just doing the their Bijou. first tour. So. Yeah. yeah, it was the Bijou. So It was. Yeah, and the Bijou, for anyone who doesn't know what it is, it was like a basement. I think it's a dry cleaners now. It was a basement kind of club. It had like a second level, like a little square over the top. And I saw a number of bands there through the years. First time I saw the Hooters was there, Coco Taylor, a number of other people. Uh, and George Thurgood and the Destroyers played a legendary show broadcast live on MMR that, that happened at the Bijou. So not to get too far afield on this, but these guys were, for a young band, on a roll. And their second record, October, comes out, and they keep touring like a lot of bands did back then you write album tour was pretty much your life that's what you were committing to everybody heard glory on the radio but there were so many great songs like i fall down and i know you love october the title track we've talked about that oh it's a beautiful song the piano on it is just stunning and moving and then songs like i think i threw a brick uh, through a window i fall down just it's a powerful record it didn't make as much noise on the circuit as well as far as the college circuit and the rock circuit because they said that it was much more of an introspective record to them and growing up in ireland and northern ireland in the 80s with the ira and the bombings and the strife and two of them being protestant and two of them being catholic and them having to look at it from both sides they got to see it from all sides and they lived it firsthand they lived terrorism and they lived you know internal war firsthand yeah as childhood and they even said that they aren't innocent and there's a very nasty side of them bono said that in one of these early trouser press interviews they're like we're not as innocent and naive as you may think we are from our music look at where we grew up so never thought that about him but i get where he's coming from yeah so i think they they're basically saying you know we've lived we've seen some pretty brutal things and they have it explains some of their early music as well and they got very political with the next record which is where we're going you can't talk about you two or the album war without talking about the political impact they started to make and you kind of hint at it there they're starting to talk about the troubles back home they're starting to take on the world view and other things are happening one of the things that i think is important it was important to them certainly at this period in the band when they came over to tour they became immersed in america the american experience and it would spill out more and more through the next next few records, but they were taking it all in, and that includes a legendary performance recorded live for an album at your home venue in those days, Red Rocks near Denver. Yes, Morrison, Red Rocks, a magical place to see a show, and that night was absolutely incredible and magical. One of the... uh, Mom and Dad let you go that time, right? Yeah, still to this day, I was with all of, like, my whole big group of high school friends. There were like 25 of us together, along with about 500 other people, a thousand other people from my high school that were at that show. Jackson was at that show. So, yeah, he was living in Denver at that time. I can't remember where he went to high school, but he came out there or he was living in South Dakota and his dad was in Denver and he came out for the summer and he went to it and it was incredible. The Divinals opened up. The alarm was supposed to open up as well, but they didn't take the stage because of the rain that night. So it was only the Divinals and you too. And then uh, did she touch herself? No, this was pre-touch herself. I think she, if I'm not mistaken, she was uh, cutting herself up with razor blades on stage. 
imagine doing some crazy stuff like that. And as a 15, 16-year-old kid, I'm like, what the fuck is that? She's cutting herself. That night was seriously unbelievable. The rain, the fire, the stage, the sound. Their stage presence was unbelievable. And to this day, I still, in my head, I can hear Barry Faye introducing the band on stage at that moment. And the crowd just going wild. Whoa. I'm just enjoying sitting over here. My friends who listen on a regular basis, the man is a puddle right now because he's remembering a moment, a formative moment in rock and roll. That's how powerful it is, man. Ladies and gentlemen, a warm Red Rocks welcome, please, from Dublin, Ireland, you decades later you still feel that moment as if it was yesterday and i'm just enjoying watching you geek out about it to tell you the truth marcus i can't believe i'm tearing up talking about it but it's also because all right then don't ever bring up bruce springsteen at the spectrum in 1978 unless you want to see the same okay okay (laughs) yeah i'm sure we'll get there as well we will get there and i'll be the puddle of water but yeah that tour that show was magical a couple of weeks later our radio station kvpi in denver played the entire concert and i still have that because set from that that i recorded that night off the radio of that show so power radio man i know power radio. power radio well look there were big songs on more right but i also fell in love with a lot of the songs that other people didn't think were so big or whatever like seconds oh, what like the song dude. 40 which has become an anthem for the fans and one of my favorite feels in live rock and roll anytime anywhere is when i'm in a crowd and they start 40 at the end of the very end of the show and one by one they peel off walk off mm-hmm. and then at the end of the it's just the crowd singing the refrain of 40 it's now you're gonna get me going because exactly. that's the kind of moment that you two has given me in my life in a live environment that you can't compare to other things that you can't compare to the band you saw last week or the band you're gonna see next week because those moments don't happen every day Sing this with me this is 40. So see the new bands and see what they're doing because they're going to make you feel this way in 10 years or 20 years. Trust me. Trust me. Even in this day and age, if you get a chance to see U2, I highly recommend you go see U2. Still through and through, one of the best live shows of music you will ever get out there. They bring it every freaking time they take the stage. It is an experience to see them live. That's it. Really, that's it. That's in in essence, it is. It's an experience every time. And a guy who we haven't talked about yet that we have to talk about a little bit of the maestro in these things. 
The boys did their thing. The man who kind of made everything work around them to do what they wanted to do the way they wanted to do it, the great Paul McGinnis, their manager, a guy who once in an interview said, I'm not saying U2 is one of the most important industries in Ireland, but when we go on tour and put out an album, they add people at the tax office. And that's the truth because they were generating cash not only for themselves and for him, and he was a guy who got them and who they understood had their best interest at heart and really became part of the gang. Adam Clayton was the one who got McGinnis to come see them live for the very first time when they were a young band. And McGinnis liked Adam, but he was like, yeah, yeah, I'll come see him. And he didn't expect much because they were so young. And then he saw him and he was like, holy shit, the potential of this band. And he saw it right away. And so sometime in that soon thereafter, he became agreed to become their manager. And one of them said, your first job is to get us into the pub next door grabbing pints. <laughs> so he knew he was in with the right gang. And by the time they get to this point, Marcus, things are really starting to heat up for them. They've gotten their beachhead established in America. The American experiences start to filter into them. And they're very soulful guys, all of them in their own way. But most especially that Bono Vox of O'Connell Street. He just took it all in, sucked it all in and metabolized it all. And by the time they get around to doing The Unforgettable Fire, it's on full display. And the follow-up EP, Wide Awake in America, which I want to talk more about, those two steps in the evolution, we'll talk about that and the steps that come afterwards next on The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Well, I know what'll quench my thirst, and probably yours too, buddy, and that's a nice cold pint from Crook and Eye Brewery right there in the heart of Hatboro at York and Montgomery. They're easy to find, and when you get there, you're never going to want to leave. Oh, that place is such a great hangout. The beer's all really good. The staff is fantastic. The music is good. They even have yeah, vinyl nights. You host some of those vinyl nights where people bring their vinyl and throw down some great jams on vinyl, and you hear the hissing and popping over the loudspeakers while you're enjoying those beers. <laughs> well, the music has has returned to Crooked Eye, and people have returned to Crooked Eye, but don't forget to mask up, and that's necessary under state regulations. The guys at the pub are taking care to follow the governor's regulations, and you can keep up with not only what's going on there, but all the music and all the activities going on, and you can check out the online open mic. They've got a page, too. It's all about Crooked Eye on Facebook. Their Facebook presence is fantastic, and they definitely do a great job at keeping people in the know as far as what's going on with Crooked Eye. Well, word is that Jeff is brewing up the favorites, and that's what people want to hear. Go in and see what's on the board and have a nice, frosty, delicious summer pint. Pick it up at Crooked Eye right in the heart of Hatboro. Crooked Eye supporting us here on the podcast and serving the cure for what ails you since 2014. We're back after a fresh pint from Crooked Eye, Ray Coop. Marcus in the darkest. Talking about a band that we both love dearly. Um, for me, uh, they're part of my DNA and some of the DNA that I talk about passing on to my kids, too. You know, they, they all know U2's music from just living with me, you know? Yeah, my son definitely has heard U2 as well. It's been played quite regularly. He's heard it not only here, but when I'm on the radio and he's listening or when we're listening to the radio. So he knows U2's music. When I had just kind of started my time at WMMR in Philadelphia, I was already a big U2 fan, partially from what I'd heard on the radio, including MMR. And when the record came out, obviously, everybody was excited to hear it, expected to be a big breakthrough. And Pride in the Name of Love is released from Island Records, and just everybody's playing it. As you might expect, Marcus, it just became instantly part of things and had cemented U2's role at rock stations around the country as a band that was one of theirs that alternative stations that had started to pop up were also embracing them because they were an alternative sound when they first hit 1980 and they continue to play them some of them still do the love for this band spread far and wide and worldwide and uh, the cover is Slane Castle where part of the, the album was recorded with new producer Brian Eno with a young buck named Daniel Lenoir in tow they worked it together and it's where they started working with Lenoir who we talked about recently about his role in P. 
Peter Gabriel so. So that's what's going on right in there around 84, 85, 86. One thing leads to another in rock and roll, as The Fix once sang. The band continued being politically active in this album, and they began the global political themes in their songs on the war record with New Year's Day, and they continued to do so on The Unforgettable Fire, and they will continue to do so moving forward from here, which shows that they really do care about the people, the places they play, the world around them. And today, some people might be more in the political climate we live in, aggravated by some of these lyrics, but they were very relevant then. And again, like we have talked about with some of the other songs that we have heard from the past, even more relevant today in the political climate. And Pride in the Name of Love is one of those that's important today and one we should listen to lyrically. It shows their impact from getting the full story of going to Memphis and getting the full story about the death of Martin Luther King. They have a song called MLK. There's a song called Elvis Presley in America, which is more about politics than anything else. A song called The Fourth of July. Indian Summer Sky. These are all things where the American experience, like you said, is starting to seep into them and their songs. And we see it continue through the next few records. But this cycle of songs is where they say, okay, remember all that stuff we told you about how we feel about what's going on in Ireland? Well, this is how we feel about what's going on here in the United States. And this was many moons ago, mid-80s. It really drew a lot of people to them and a lot of attention to them. And people would come to them for opinions about stuff because stuff was happening then too. And a lot of the stuff that they would get involved in as a band trying to fight world hunger by playing at Live Aid, their stance against apartheid in South Africa and their role in that and becoming world citizens as a band. You know, people jokingly called him St. Bono because all of a sudden he was chums with the Pope and all kinds of stuff, right? You know, art is political and it always will be political in some shape, way, or form. But Bono, again, showed that he was very, very concerned about world hunger, about the people of the world. And when you write good music and it resonates with everybody, including the Pope... And your message resonates with the Pope. It says a lot. And it really shows you that these young kids were out to try to change the world and make it a better place for future generations. And you hear, in some ways, that idealism, but you also hear that vision in their lyrics and in their sound. And while doing so, they were on the verge of becoming the biggest band on the planet. And a couple steps happen in here. Oh, wait a minute. It's a note from the research department. What did they did say? Did you know that Peter Gabriel, we were talking about Peter Gabriel and Daniel Lenoir. We talked about them on the uh, episode about the So Out. He actually does vocals on a sort of homecoming on the Daniel Lenoir remix. Ha-ha. Have to look more into that. Christine Kerr does some backing vocals on the Pride in the Name of Love recording. That's Miss Chrissy Hine. When she was married to Jim Kerr of Simple Minds. She crushed him. Yep. I had dinner with Jim six months after they broke up. She crushed him. It's terrible. Anyway, it I, happens. I'm not Relationships surprised. can end bad. He's amazing, and Simple Minds has but some great albums. But there's a connection, albums. buddy, right? right? There's yep. Daniel and Juan, Peter Gabriel plugging into U2, and then he's with U2, and yes. he's going to later do Peter. The connections that we see is what I was trying to point out, not rehashing Jim Kerr's broken hearts. It was a memorable evening. It was still a fun evening hanging out with him, by the way, but he did pour out his heart a little bit. Mm. But there we are, and they are taking flight. Now, something around this time happens that kind of like catapults it, you know, like in you know, a Monty Python movie or a video. Mm movie catapulting you know we're taking the castle and it was slaying castle they were about to take in the world they recorded and released the ep wide awake in america which i know you love it's really good songs love comes tumbling down good recording of the band and looking for a second single ever inventive at 93.3 wmmr in philadelphia the programming gang comes up with an edit of bad from wide awake in america which basically becomes the next single for you too and helps to continue to catapult the unforgettable fire they shortened it from its full i think it was eight minutes on the ep or six minutes on the ep they took it down to an arable thing you know for radio at the time four and a half minutes five minutes and they used to do a thing called the top five at five where people would vote in and decide which were the top five songs of the day. It was the number one song on that little calling countdown for weeks. And I remember that distinctly as being part of the experience of that period of U2 around the unforgettable fire.
Yeah, that little uh, EP is a doozy. Tony Visconti produces a sort of homecoming live. Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois produce the Three Sunrises. U2 does a couple by themselves. So it's pretty uh, an impressive little EP. And it definitely, like you said, is catapulting them to the next level. And that next level really kicks in with 1987's The Joshua Tree. When we talk about seeping America into your soul and really experiencing it, what they felt when they went to the desert altered them and had them coming back with the feels that led to amazing songs one after another on what is definitely my favorite U2 album, The Joshua Tree. There's no denying that this is probably the greatest piece that they've recorded in their illustrious career. And that's not a knock on anything else that they've done, but this album is special in a special kind of way. Kind of like Peter Gabriel's So, kind of like a few of those other ones, Led Zeppelin right, 4, right. you know. It's, yeah. it's a magical album. And this is one of those albums that impacted so many millions, maybe even billions of people around the world. Like seriously, maybe even billions around the world. Now, Marcus, I didn't get to see them at Red Rocks, but I did start going to see you too and saw them on the Unforgettable Fire Tour. And it's almost like the universe paying me back a little bit. By the time they get around to the Joshua Tree Tour, there were multiple dates in Philadelphia. I went to all of them. I took a busload to see them in New York. I saw the show like, I don't know, like five times in the space of months and just totally got immersed in it. And it all was part of my experience of working at WMMR. How could you not want to see this tour so many times when you had the opportunity? Look at uh, the album Up and Down. It's something special. And then what they have already recorded, I can only imagine how great that show was live. Those shows initially, as I recall, were indoors. But one of the best times, maybe the best time I ever saw you 2 is right around that time when I saw them on the Conspiracy of Hope tour. And that show at Giant Stadium at that time was an incredible day for me as a still kind of young guy being part of a radio station, working with the legendary WNEW and the other side of the booth. My pal Bubba John Stevens was at the mic all day. And the people who came by to visit and the performance that you 2 gave that day along with everybody else who was there made it an incredible most memorable day in uh, my rock and roll life. And it's all tied right in and around the whole Joshua Tree experience because then they would go on tour and come to Philly and play multiple nights at the Spectrum. And we got such great hookups. We would take a busload places and see. I saw them did that with the Stones and U2 and a couple other bands, you know, with Washington shows and New York shows. But to be able to do all this, you know, I think it was the Meadowlands concert at that time for U2. We went, took a whole busload up there. It was incredible. Everybody, this is the, the group that they've all embraced so warmly for so long and now they're hitting a level that none of us had really thought of when we really first heard of them they become the band of the moment the biggest band in the world and the songs are what drove the whole thing they were so huge at that time and you're right there's again not a bad song on the album there's no reason for you to not check it out all the way through front to back because I think if you've never done that you'll feel the album in a completely different way Bullet the Blue Sky is still my favorite song on that record there's just something about that song that really moves me One Tree Hill I really really like and God's Country is an amazing song you still have Where the Streets Have No Name I still have found what I'm looking for with or without you. Then that goes into Bullet the Blue Sky. That side one of the album is unreal and it just continues all the way through. And part of the process of the Joshua Tree tour is how it kind of morphs into being a large part of the next album and a documentary rock and roll movie, Rattle and Hum, right? Yeah, Rattle and Hum, which was kind of like, you know, how Dave Grohl did Sound City, where he talked about the studio. They went to a bunch of studios that were influential to him, including Sun Studios, and did some recording and did some playing at some of these different yeah, studios. Like they were mixed, in Berlin. And, yeah, and it was really, really a cool movie. It also showed you the much more serious side of Bono and The Edge, whereas it also showed us how funny Adam and Larry are. Those two guys are definitely the most lighthearted and laid back of the band, whereas you see 
the two front men, well, Bono, the front man, and of course, The Edge, who are a little more serious and do a lot more of the uh, speaking, I guess you would say. There was all kinds of activity around that tour and a lot of the shows that were both recorded on video there was a lot more footage than they used for what became rattling on marcus they shot shows in foxborough in philly at jfk stadium i was at that show september 25th 1987 they also shot at the garden and at at rehearsals on the beach and in boston at boston garden and these things didn't get all used in the movie but that footage is out there and i don't know is it out on any kind of an extended dvd i'd i'd want to see it all i think it is on one of the uh, bonus like 25 year editions or one of the because they also recorded in Denver. Helter Skelter, Silver and Gold, and Pride were all recorded in Denver, and I think those were at Mm. McNichols Arena. So they did it all over. Sun Devil Stadium is where Bullet the Blue Sky was recorded in Tempe, Arizona. Yep, all over, right. it really, oh my God, and then when, I can't remember where they recorded When Love Comes to Town. We'll have to look that up. But yeah, in the film, it's got McNichols Arena, November 8th, 1987, and I was in uh, Columbia, Missouri at that time, so I wasn't able to go see them school days for school you, bro. days for me which was a bummer but well all i know is that i listen to this album regularly throughout my life it's available to me i listen and i remember those days it's as simple as that right 30 years go by and they come back and they're going to do the 30-year performance in its entirety of the album and you know i was there covering it for mgk at the time but I just sat there and just watched the whole thing through and just was like, this is just so amazing to hear it all these years later, performed again. And it put it all in context, kind of put a, a nice bow on the package that is you too in my life. But here we are back in the 80s in the middle of it and rattle and hum. And, you know, it does okay. It doesn't, it's not like the land doesn't knock down any doors as far as being a documentary or any huge seller, but the fans love it. And that's what's happening here. And then there's a little break and they come back with an album that if it's not my favorite U2 album, it's definitely 1A or number 2. In Octung Baby, every track on the album flows. If you listen, like we always talk about here on the podcast, listen in its natural form as an album and feel how they put this album together, the way it flows and where it goes. It's an incredible album. The Fly I really like because it was so different for them and Mysterious Ways just moved. Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses? Remember the the beauty of hearing that for the first time and just being moved like I'm getting goosebumpy thinking about that and going back to the time when I first heard this record one even better than the real thing and it was a mixed production effort with Lanois, Lily White and Eno all doing different tracks and working together on some it was kind of unique and I think that might lead to the feel man because the way you go from Zoo Station you're like a train pulling out right and then you glide right into even better than the real thing and then one until the end of the world who's going to ride your wild horse and after five songs you're sitting there going holy shit I feel good like it just changes your mood it's the kind of a stretch of an album that can just change your day and you're not even to the really cool stuff like the fly in mysterious ways yet that's true <laughs> it shows the growth of the band as well and how much they've changed from that early set of albums and it shows that after that break they're heading in a completely new direction you know who they incorporated in this album that you know and love his work is a guy known is Mark Ellis, but his his pseudonym is Flood. And Flood worked with tons of people you love. New Order, Nine Inch Nails, Depeche Mode, Gary Newman Ministry. And he's got his hands in both recording and engineering and mixing. And we've been learning a lot how important these guys in the credits are because of the manual nature of mixing, one. And two, because Mm -hmm. of the way you achieve the idea often is by the way you approach it from an engineering and recording standpoint. It's a very interesting part of what we learn personally here on the podcast. So here they are, Marcus. They're the biggest band in the world. Do you think this was part of their reality when they thought about being a band at the Mount Temple Comprehensive School? Yes, I do. Their vision to be a big band started early. So yes, I think that they had envisioned trying to achieve the level of success that bands like the Beatles had done. I looked at a list of the uh, notable alumni from their school, and they're on there, and so is Paul's wife, Ali Hewson. She's listed as an Irish activist, businesswoman, and of course, wife of Bono. 
And also Dave Evans' brother, Dick Evans, D-I-K. He was in a couple bands, nothing of note. But, you know, it's got all the alumni there. And there they are, like, what, almost a quarter of all these notable alumni from their school. They did it, Marcus, and they put the world on notice. At this point, they are on their way, and they come back with Zuropa which is a different kind of record than they just hit with. A completely different kind of record. They had done things that they had never done before. The Lemon Song, think about the falsettas that Bono goes after vocally in that song. And then just some of the weird directions, or I don't even know if weird's the right word, but different, different. directions. Different, I agree. Yeah, they did a later remix of a bunch of songs that included people like uh, Paul Oakenfeld remixing some of their songs, like the Lemon Song. And they did a bunch of stuff with it that was very I guess you could almost say pre-Radiohead Radiohead like pre-OK Computer and Kid A you know it's you like, know what it did is it put them right in the middle of what was going on musically and trends and not only were they uh, taking it all in but they were also influencing out by saying yeah we like these sounds and this is different and they did a little different approach they had Flood in there they had Eno and the Edge starts to be more involved in the production at this point and it's really different textures that really set this album aside and it didn't have like a bunch of big radio hits or anything, but it's one of their more successful records. I did not see the tour. I have not seen them since the uh, Red Rock show in 83, but I know people who went to the Zeropa tour and said it was just a mind-blowing experience. Is that the one where they called the White House? I think so, yes. Or was it the Pop Yes, tour? that was, I think the White House was on that one. Let me double check. Research team. Research team, hold on. Looks like you have a text from the research department, Marcus. I do. The text came in and it said that uh, they called the White House during the Zoo TV tour. Oh, for Octung Baby. So that was before Zuropa, the album. All right. See, we're still putting things together on the fly here, and we're getting better at it, I do think. I think our research department is earning their fat paychecks. That's for sure. They definitely are, and they're getting quicker, so we're going to have to give them a raise. <laughs> we're going to have to give them a raise. Uh, don't give them any ideas. Sorry. But they're in a different phase with Zuropa, and the next record, Pop, it was four years between records. They kind of disappeared, and uh, when they come back, again, Again, plugging into the technology and the trends of the time, they launched their Pop Mart tour in a lingerie section at Kmart in New York. And they did like a little splash there. And then they were on ABC. They did a primetime special, all kinds of stuff going on that they didn't do before. They had Dennis Hopper involved as the narrator for that thing. And that was the kind of splash they were making. And a lot of that was Paul McGinnis, who was making things happen to get the boys back out there. He knew it had been a little bit of time. He wanted to get them back on people's radar. And he did it. And the album did it, even though it may not be like their greatest album that they made in the 90s. When you look at the songs, there's good songs on this album and same with Zuropa but for some reason they didn't catch on or click with the general public at large but the fans love these albums even though they represent a different detour in the road the long road that U2 has been taking Pop uh, they again did at a bunch of different studios including a few in Dublin they were in Miami they were kind of all over the place and it really like you said didn't do as well for the band as some of their previous albums it was flood and the edge pretty much doing all of the uh, production work with a little right. bit of steve osborne so they totally changed directions and i've seen critics call it things like a miscalculation which i think is a poor choice of words for it because they did what they wanted to do they saw their vision they enacted the vision and at the end of the day i think they were happy with the result and released it even though it wasn't critically you know received or radio received they still do really well every time they tour they sell out the arenas they sell out the stadiums and they still put on these amazing productions and shows that are mind-blowing and this just was a different direction for them but again it was what they wanted that's essentially what they've done and it's allowed them to survive and change and not be stagnant in a sound or a feel or an idea of what they are as a band playing back to what you said about how they took their name and as the century turns they come back with an album that really started a resurgence of sorts in all that you can't leave behind by then some of their fans were a little bit skeptical you 
mentioned in a previous episode your love-hate relationship with the band, and I don't think you were alone. But this album, the songs and the sound, they got refocused towards their trademark sound with better songs or just more successful songs like Beautiful Day and Stuck in a Moment and Walk On and Peace on Earth. Those songs continue to stick with people here 20 years later. That's 20 years ago. A Beautiful Day is a great song. Stuck in a Moment, You Can't Get Out of, Elevation, Walk On. Yeah, Elevation too. Seriously, when I look at the world, the deep cut New York, uh, they brought Daniel Lanois back into the picture. They had Lily White, Lanois, and Eno again together. And I think you see the comfort level of them all working together and the ability for them to bring out the best in each other in a special kind of way or a different kind of way resonates on this album. I really, really love Beautiful Day. I think it's a brilliant pop rock song. And yeah, really is. And it stands the test of time by how much it still gets played. Oh, absolutely. That's not the only measuring stick. You know, for the band themselves, they want to put out a record that they're happy with and proud of, and it does what it does, and that's really when Paul McGinnis kicks in, you know, and setting up the tours through the years and helping to build the mystique of U2, working behind the scenes when there didn't appear to be anything going on to get ready for the next thing, and that happens again. And a couple years later, it's How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb, what an unusual title, but not unusual in the sound and feels that you get from listening to the music on that record. That's true. Do you remember hearing um, what was uh, the very first single that they released, Vertigo? Vertigo, yeah. And it just smacked you right in the head right from the get-go. You know what they did on this record as far as producers? Uh, they took everybody, I, it looks like almost everybody they've worked with in the past, and had them all work by committee to produce this record, and maybe that's where they got the title from. But on that song, the one that people remember the most and best for, for the most fans, I think, it's just Steve Lily White in the band and that's always a formula that worked for them but there's such great music on there and again it gets them thinking about getting out there and hitting the road and they go out on the Vertigo tour a very popular and successful tour a huge tour uh, yeah with the stage in the ring and uh, they, they always had neat stages you know they the Claw 360 tour just the concept of the Claw and the way it was used in those shows and the way that they executed those shows in an in the round setting it really was stuff I know other bands have played in the round, but nobody did the kind of shit that they did on those tours. And uh, all this music that we're talking about is the music of their current time as they're going through this, where the touring continues to be just over-the-top amazing every time they go out to try to get a ticket, right? Oh, yeah. They sell out every arena they play. They sell out every stadium they play. It's an experience, a show, and a concert kind of all mixed in together. It turns out that when you spend a night with you 2 you spend a night doing or feeling a lot of things because of the power of that band and one of the things about their big stage and their you know big stadium show is they really make the crowd feel like they are part of the show or the experience they make you feel like you are included in it and hard not to be it's really hard they not really to be. are very inclusive with the fans and that's a huge bonus and a huge connection that they get with their audience when they get together to make what would eventually be No Line on the Horizon. An album that I, again, sat there and said, okay, I like the last one. Can you do it again? Can you make a record that I like, even if it's not like all tailored to commercial and radio? Well, in that quest, they reassemble the unholy trinity of Brian Eno, Daniel Lenoir, and Steve Lillywhite, and they go to work. And it's a great album that I truly enjoy. It's not like your radio uh, through the roof kind of thing, but I just love that record. There's a feel that they're still making records different kinds of music different feelings all within the same album and that's why i liked them in the beginning and that's why i like when i continue to hear from them and look forward to the next record that album was one of my lead not least favorite but it's one that i guess didn't connect with as much i'm with you i understand what you're saying but again musically it's well put together that band was working with some incredible people again like they've always done and it just is one that never really resonated as strongly with me somewhere in the middle of what we're talking about here is the now famous fall that bono takes while riding a bicycle in central park in new york oh yeah just as it's i just 
is a chassid. And uh, just and it, they were getting ready to go out on tour, and they had to you know cancel it obviously or reschedule. And it took a long time for that date to come around. When the first time they came back and played with the Claw and all that was um, pretty scary at the time. You know, Bono is is revered beyond just the U2 fans in the world. It was really scary for fans to think that something like that could happen while he's just you know enjoying a day off riding around in the park. And it could happen. I mean, obviously anybody, but when it happens to somebody like that and the injuries are so severe, you really worry about somebody. And the world was turning their energy towards him anytime he found himself in a spot. And that was really tough going there. But they get up and they move forward. He wasn't as steady as he used to be at first, but you know, he looks really great the last time or two that I've seen them. It's been really exciting to see that they can still get out there all these years later, still youthful in thought inside of them and out there on stage together. There's something about the connective energy that they get from each other that really keeps them going, energizes each of them to do their very best every time. Yeah, that connection you feel every time you see them on stage, every time you even see them together, even in the videos, you can feel that connective energy. And that injury was pretty devastating for Bono. I mean, he was concerned for a while that he may never be able to perform live again. And that was actually one of the uh, questions that he, or one of the issues he was faced with. He worked his butt off to recover and to be able to get back to recording and performing at the level that he expects himself to perform and record at. And I'm sure it was very daunting for him. But in these long periods of time between albums, they released EPs and remixes and a few live DVDs and CDs here and there. So they kept the music flowing and they kept bringing you some of the highlights of their past mixed with some of the uh, ideas of some of the people that are influenced by their music because of the remix. So they kept it all both relevant and allowed us to revisit the past, which means that the U2 camp has been keeping great records and great detail and has a lot of great recordings of their performances over the decades. One of those classic performances captured on video a lot of you have it in your home, is you 2 go home live from Slane Castle, Ireland. That's the castle that's on the front of Unforgettable Fire. And I got to mention that my old friend Jim Rinaldi, he's a Delco guy. I've known him for forever. He has taken photos of them all over the world, including at that show at Slane Castle. That's the DVD, and you'll see his name in the credits. And I want to thank him for lending us some of his U2 shots, and you'll see links and stuff on our social media and on the website, imbalancehistory.com. But he got some classic shots that night at Sling Castle. The band saw them and said, well, those shots should be the ones we put on the box. And they did. Oh, man. Imagine that. Philadelphia representing. And again, it continues to deepen their tie to Philadelphia, which has been strong since the very early days of U2. Around this time, something happens that I don't think everybody had anticipated, but you had to figure he was a few years older and that eventually Paul McGinnis was going to want to step down, step away from his role in U2. 34 years at the helm. He sells his company to Live Nation and Madonna's manager, Guy Osiri, succeeds him as U2's manager. That's starting around 13, 14. So that the last couple records, Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience, have come out as with him as the manager. And there's been some touring, but the guys have been kind of quiet these last few years. Touring beats the daylights out of you, and the older you get, the harder and harder it is. And yes, Need that one CBD, that's what it, I'm talking about. No kidding, but they do have the luxury of being able to travel from city to city by plane and not doing the tour bus thing, and they have some of those amenities that they have earned over the decades by becoming who they have become. And that brings us around to Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience, two albums that, you know, in my mind were really good albums and very listenable, but not over the top, but still an enjoyable listen for this U2 fan. Now, let's talk a little bit about when Songs of Innocence was released and showed up on everybody's iPhone. It was just iPhones, right? Yeah, it was just iPhones. And I, no, I think it was iTunes Library. I can't remember. It could have been both. But yeah, we all had it automatically put into our iTunes library in some shape or form. So everybody got it. And so the U2 fans like me went, oh, cool. Look, it's the new U2 album. And I played it and listened to it for a while. And other people weren't so happy, though. You People who weren't U2 fans or didn't want music forced onto their phones. It was kind of a new idea and they were willing to try it. Hey, they tried something. In some ways it backfired. In some ways it didn't. And people got free music. Well, not free music, but people got music for free that they didn't have to pay for. Right, and it probably helped to certify the album for, you know, 
RIAA purposes because they had all those legitimate downloads. It was an interesting strategy, especially in light that they just changed management. They were looking to try new things from that angle as well. I hope they continue to do all kinds of different stuff and continue to innovate with music, even if it's not as groundbreaking as Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. The songs are what it's about for us, and sometimes songs that aren't a big radio hit or anything like that touch us in a personal way. And I'll say that U2 is one of the bands that through the decades has never failed to touch me with songs, even if everybody else didn't get it. And it's one of the reasons why I love them so much. It's one of the many reasons to cherish that band because they've done so many great things with their music over the years. And even the late last one of the last singles they released, Ordinary Love, is one of my all-time favorite U2 songs. And by far, I personally think the best song they've released since A Beautiful Day. And they've released a lot of good songs since then. But again, Ordinary Love is one of those that really hit me in the feels and I think it's one of those songs that if you really listen to the lyrics it's important and they really show how much they care about people in the world that we live in by writing songs like Ordinary Love. They From the pubs of Dublin to Ordinary Love they'll keep going Marcus and that's why we love them so much. I know. Do you ever wonder how long a band like you 2 will keep recording and playing live because they could probably do it another 5-10 years at least. At the pace they're going and they're all physically in pretty good shape, right? Yeah. As long yeah, as there's no hidden ailments that we don't know about. It's one of those things where it's really hard to say because they are capable as long as, and as long as they can deliver for as far as their talents holding up. I think it's possible that they could be at least recording, if not recording and touring through their 60s, which they're all on the edge of now. And into their 70s, maybe, because look, Mick Jagger just turned 77 and he's still pissed off they canceled a summer tour. <laughs> the energy that it takes to have that idea is in these four guys. And if they can find their path forward and still want to do it, they will, because that's what drives you too. Their will to do what it is that they do. This has been a fun, I don't know how long we've been rambling on here, but the music and the memories and all the stuff that is the story of you two all mashed together here into our imbalanced little fun time here that we have on our podcast. And if you have any questions, if we left any information out in the U2 timeline, please shoot us an email, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You You know, Marcus, we have that little thing in our head that goes off that makes us say that. And mine has kind of been going off bing, bing, bing in the background all through this whole episode, knowing that we didn't want to go on for an hour and a half. I promise you this will not be your last time you hear an episode about U2. We'll find other things to do and talk about with the band. Absolutely. Maybe even break their their career down into little segments and go into big detail about a couple of the albums at a time and what they were doing and what they were going through and who they were working with and you know some of the things that were happening in their worlds at those times because and maybe Bob Coke will come on with us Ooh, that would be a lot of fun as well to get him mm-hmm. to come in and talk about he was, it he was around at all I'm Ray Coop I'm Marcus in the darkest thanks for sharing all your love for you too as we like to do together here Thank you. And we'll get together soon and do another episode about music that we love here on The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.